Take your Bibles and find Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. We're in the series, Jesus' Parables, Wisdom for Life. And last week, we saw that Jesus told a huge crowd that he taught in parables to reveal truth to those who want truth and to conceal truth to those who do not want it. And he used the parable of the soils to illustrate that. The devil steals the seed of the Word of God from hard hearts. The seed springs up and dies off in an unserious heart. It's choked out in a fearful or materialistic heart. But a heart that wants truth will bear fruit for the kingdom 30, 60, and 100 fold. To that same crowd, Jesus told this parable, known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now the wars... And the rumors of wars that are reigniting in this world bring up an age-old question. Why is there so much evil in the world? I read a story where Hamas broke into a Jewish family's house. They zip-tied all five occupants' hands behind their back. And you read the news. I'm going to stop the story there. It's too barbaric to continue. Why is there so much evil in the world. Some of you may not be thinking, why is there so much evil in the world? You may be thinking, why is there so much evil surrounding my life? There's a person you try to be at peace with, but they are irreconcilable, always digging, always picking at something. Some of your foes are your own family members. One who should be a great helper is actually a hinderer. Or you may watch as a once faithful Christian is pulled away from the church by idols and soon you realize they've apostatized and that's so discouraging. In fact, it may seem like the good things that you try to do almost always meet opposition. Wherever you try to do something good, there's some kind of opposition. Wherever you say something biblical or positive, there's someone there to contradict it. So if you were to ask God, why is there so much evil in the world? Or why is there so much evil surrounding my life? I believe he would point you to this passage. Let's read these words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. It says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then drop down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed... 
These are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this passage gives us a clear picture of what the world is like and what Jesus is doing about evil in this present age. There are two main principles at work here this morning. The first one is this, good and evil are inseparable. Good and evil are inseparable. The servants are perplexed as to how weeds can be found in the field. In verse 24, the owner had sown good seed. So in verse 27, they said, you sowed good seed. Why are there weeds? God, you sowed nothing but good. How can there be all this bad? And verse 25 explains, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Tares are a weed known as ryegrass. The Roman Empire had a law against sowing ryegrass in someone else's field. Jesus said the enemy who sowed the tares is the devil, and he sowed them, verse 25, among the wheat. So Satan places the people of this world with their secular worldview or their confusion about God or sometimes their strong opposition against God and he places them right next to you. I mean, this is, this is not something you've... We all understand this. All around us are people who are lost. That's why you face opposition when you try to live for Jesus. Now here's where we get confused. When you farm, you do what you can to keep the weeds from growing. When you grow a garden, you pull weeds so the crop will grow. So the slaves ask a logical question in verse 28. Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Lord, do you want us to clear out the tares which are choking out the wheat? But in verse 29, Jesus said no. While you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together. If you try to pull up some tares, you might injure some wheat. Besides, if we decided to do this, we'd grab the ugliest, nastiest tear and jerk it out of the ground, only to find out Jesus was about to transform it into fruitful wheat. In this world, good and evil are inseparable. I want you to see this principle applies to the church. Now, this is often preached as a parable about the church. Let's be really clear about the interpretation here. Jesus said the field is the world. So the primary application is clearly to the world. But the church, we, exist in the world. So this unavoidably applies to us. Satan is in the business of opposing all that God does. He sows evil among the good, so we should be alert to that. 2 Corinthians 11 says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. There's an old saying that fits here. When you look for the devil, don't forget to look in the pulpit. I'm not joking. 
Terror-led churches today promote sexual immorality. Or they redirect a church to social affairs and good works completely absent from the gospel. They will call good evil and evil good. Yet it's not just in the pulpit, it's also in the membership. James Montgomery Boyce pointed out, we should not be surprised when some leave the church or are very unfaithful. He said, he quoted 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Preaching on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said, you who get tired of the worship of God on the Lord's day, do you think the Lord will endure unwilling worshipers in the temple above? Even in Bible preaching churches, folks, we have to remember that good and evil are inseparable. So there's a really delicate balance here. For example, it used to be there was little due diligence when it came to church membership. Someone would come forward with an invitation, they would declare their faith, and they were a de facto member. When it came time to vote on them, all those in favor say aye, amen. No investigation, really. Now the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. The term you'll hear is regenerate church. It said we have to be sure that every member of the church is saved. J.C. Ryle said, If we're extreme in our efforts to obtain purity, we do more harm than good. Yet extremism is increasing today, and more and more people are victims of church abuse. Do you realize by today's standards, Judas would escape church discipline? He was trusted with the money. He was faithful in following Jesus. So he would escape, but others would be and are wrongly chastised and removed. And in the process, many churches are blown up and many a bruised reed is broken. In the late 60s and early 70s, many came to faith during what was called the Jesus Movement. And in 1971, a great preacher then named Ray Stedman said, even in the great awakening we're seeing today, many young people are again making this mistake. They say they're going to start their own church. It's going to be a true church, a pure church. They're going to be free from error, but that is impossible. You cannot separate evil from the church. But there's another side to this. The Bible plainly says, reprove, or excuse me, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It says, reject a factious man after the first and second warning. And then a verse that is just widely ignored. Paul said, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother who is an immoral person. A word for sexual immorality. Not to associate with any immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not to even eat with such a one. I'm going to step on some glass today, so I'm going to tread real careful. We rightly carried out church discipline here in 2013. As one of our members said to me earlier, I think it was this year, and I see him here today, he said, I'm not sure we'd be here today had we not done that. Now, it was hard. Many people left accusing us of being unloving. We were slandered on Facebook, but what they failed to realize in many cases, do not want to know. The Scripture not only calls for it, it was done after almost seven years of trying to placate divisive and factious people. You cannot separate good from evil, but you still have to try. And yet there's still another side to this. 
Someone will have a bad experience at a church, and they'll never go to church again. That's it. They're done. That's also extremism. To judge all churches by the foolishness of one, somehow ignoring their own sin in the process. Here's the bottom line. There will never be a perfect, pure, and righteous expression of God's kingdom in any form on this earth until he returns. Any attempt to make that perfect, J.C. Ryle said, you might as well try to purify the Dead Sea. Now, having said all that, we should have a regenerate church. That's our goal. That's a good goal. Every member should be saved. We do our best without extremism to make sure that happens, but it will never happen in this church or any other church until Jesus returns. And we might say, all right, Jesus, I'm just being honest. Why is it that way? Why are there tears in a pulpit? Why are there tears in a membership? The growing of the wheat and the tares together cause pain and injury. Why, Jesus, why? And his answer is, let them grow together. But Lord, your church is so wrongly criticized and ignored today. Should let them grow together. But Lord, people claim you don't even fear you. What? Let them grow together. But Lord, I let them grow together. You can't separate good from evil. And here's how I know that. I see it in my own heart. Humility and pride fight for dominance. Courage and cowardice battle it out. Also doing battle, as one old Baptist revivalist said, are Dr. Law and Mr. Grace, always battling in my heart. You face this inward tension. A tension all your life between right and wrong, good and evil, holiness and sin. Good and evil cannot be separated. This principle applies in the church, and clearly, this principle applies in the world. The tares and the wheat are growing together. So again, verse 28, the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? The implication is nothing good is going to come out of the proliferation of these weeds, so let's get rid of them. And Jesus said, Let them grow together. So there is an explanation. Notice that word grow in verse 30. Both grow together until the harvest. Wheat and tares look alike at first, when the blade comes through the ground, they're almost indiscernible. But when full grown, the wheat bears fruitful grain. The tare is a weed that just bears more seeds for weeds. It takes time, but time always reveals the truth. Time always reveals the truth. They look alike until the harvest. It's an explanation. I want you to see there's an exhortation. The tares are all around the wheat. They're sown by the enemy among the wheat, but do you notice the wheat still grows? In fact, verse 26 says the wheat still bears grain. All the evil around us is not going to stop the growth of the wheat. In fact, spiritual growth is a mark of a believer. We won't grow without opposition. It's like lifting weights. The greater the resistance, the greater the struggle. But the greater the struggle, the greater the growth. You might think 
that you and your life make little difference in this world because of the opposition you face. But do you notice what Jesus does in verse 26? He uses the metaphor of wheat to illustrate the fruit of good seed. Eventually, all that grain, that good seed, goes to harvest. Some of it will be planted into the soil and be choked out by tares, but much of it will spring up and thrive despite the tares. The wheat still bear fruit despite the presence of the tares. Think about that in terms of the start of the church. In Acts chapter 1, there are 120 stalks of wheat hiding and praying in an upper room. Along comes the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit, and those 120 stalks of wheat emerge into a world of tares, completely outnumbered, with no strategy, no money, no influence, and all they have is all they need, the word of truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. And look where we are today. Global Christianity, fruitful churches, evangelism, missions, prayer, Spirit-led fellowship like we enjoy in this church and Jesus Christ our Lord being glorified through all of it. However, tares create massive conflict along the way. Violence, bloodshed, socialism, mass persecution, sometimes torture, racism, greed, why is that allowed to happen? And Jesus says, let them grow together. Why is that always the answer? Let them grow together. I talked to a man on Tuesday who's been a recent missionary to Cambodia. So I asked him about sex trafficking there, and he said in Cambodia and Thailand, it's normal. He said mothers will parade their daughters down the street trafficking them to whoever will pay the highest price. That's what desperate people do. They're victims of a place where capitalism without the rule of law is not norm in a culture. And this is all around the world. So what do we do about this, Jesus? This is injustice. What should we do about it? We do what we can, but otherwise, let them grow together. Let them grow together. Let them grow together. Let them grow together. Is Jesus nonchalant about evil? The answer is no. Because while principle number one is you cannot separate good from evil, principle number two is good will be separated from evil. Good will be separated from evil. Look again at verse 30. Allow them both to grow together until the harvest. The harvest is the end of the age. Jesus said so in verse 39. Someday, it's harvest time. And when that time comes, it is a time of separation. Look at verse 30 again. Jesus said, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this principle of separation from good from evil is seen throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God wanted his people to separate themselves from the pagan people around them. He said, do not even intermarry with them. John the Baptist said of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will gather up the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
There's a parable of the ten virgins. Five are prudent, five are unprepared. When it's time for the wedding, the unprepared ones are locked out, separated from the ones who are ready. When Jesus comes, the Bible says, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus will bring perfect justice to every person who has ever lived. Now, we don't know what that'll look like. Billions of people being judged, but no one escapes it. It's a time of separation, and it's a time of devastation. Keep reading in verse 30. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. The phrase burn them up is not a remnant of less civilized times, as if we're civilized today. These are words that come from Jesus' lips. The tenderest heart that ever beat in a human breast was that of Jesus, and these words came from him. Jesus is far more extreme than we make him out to be. We like to domesticate him. His grace and his mercy are so far beyond our understanding. If, if you're here today and you think that you cannot be forgiven of something in your life, I'm glad to tell you that you're wrong. His grace and His mercy have no limits. Books have been written. Songs have been sung. Praise has been given. None of it comes close to plumbing the depths of His great mercy and grace. Yet His righteous anger and His wrath are far more severe than what we imagine. And He warns humanity over and over again, Old and New Testament, about the fierceness of His wrath against sin and sinners. How many of you have heard someone say, only God can judge me? If they knew what they were saying, they'd turn to stone in fear. Sin that God, excuse me, sin that man calls no big deal is what God calls worthy of damnation. Now in our culture today, this passage of Scripture offends the moral sensibilities of some. And multitudes of people reject this. Some who are terribly evil, some who are quite nice. But without Jesus, every person will go to this place called hell. And, and I pray that you would hear this this morning. If this offends you, if you stiffen your neck against this, or I'm not here to upbraid you about it. I'm just here to tell you about it. Someday, near the end of your life or after your life, in heaven or hell, I don't know. If I didn't preach about this, you could rightly say, why did I never hear about this in church of all places? Or you could say, you know what? I'm just going to go to a church that preaches grace, that is positive and, and upbeat about everything, that doesn't talk about things like this. Or you can just refuse to go to church. You can sit at home and read the Bible the way you want to read it. And amazingly, God affirms everything you think and do. It's entirely up to you, but someday, every one of us will have to deal with this. Every one of us will stand before Jesus.
and it will be the Jesus of the Bible, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will be the judge. John 5, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. If you are offended by tares being gathered into bundles and burned up, there is someday a gentle conversation that either Nathan or myself would love to have with you, to talk, talk with you, help you to reconcile it, to, to deal with it. But in the meantime, I have a suggestion. Rather than trying to Google your way out of these verses or inventing your own personal version of Jesus or saying, well, I don't agree with that, the best course of action is to believe what this word says Take it seriously right now and get right with God in every area of your life. No one, no one will stand before Jesus after their death and say, I didn't agree with all you taught. Or, well, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't believe, but I've changed my mind now that I see. I was offended by that, but I see now I was wrong. But where's the door to the kingdom? That won't happen because it'll be too late. On the day of the harvest, the tares will face the fire of God's wrath. And verse 41 says, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness. Well, a stumbling block is one who tempts others to sin. One who commits lawlessness is a person who lives in a general state of wickedness. Compared to the tares in verse 40, they seem to gain special attention here. We know there are degrees of punishment in hell. That could be the reason. But regardless, all tares are thrown into a furnace of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that a literal fire? Some say yes. And if you read old school, and old school's good school, by the way, they say absolutely. Others say no, 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 it's only a symbol. But if it's a symbol, it's a figure of speech. And a figure of speech is a linguistic attempt to describe that which is beyond the ability of words to accurately describe. If this is symbolic, it may be worse than fire. Now, does all this make God a moral monster? That admittedly is another sermon for another day, but... We complain when it appears God does nothing about the evil in the world. Why so many bad things happen and Jesus just says, let them grow together, let them grow together. Then we find out he most certainly does deal with evil and we complain about that? Our objections reveal two things. Number one, we don't understand how hideous sin is. How deeply we offend God by our sin. How we kindle his wrath by disobeying Him, by not taking Him lightly. Neither do we understand how holy God is. We have, pers hear this please, we have personified Him to the point where we no longer have a healthy fear of Him. Not a bit. And then we take our standard of human justice, impose it on God and call it unfair? Hell is an expression of God's wrath and justice, just as heaven is an ex expression of His grace and mercy. Now, through all this and other passages, we know that Christians are accountable for sins. 
And that's a paradox because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Our sins are wiped away, yet we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards, rewards that will be diminished by sin, possibly even gone. Paul speaks of a person whose entire work can be burned up and yet enters heaven, yet so is through fire. I have trouble imagining that, but who wants to do that? So since we all know this, let's individually judge ourselves before we get there. Alan Redpath was the pastor of Duke Street Baptist Church in London before Stephen Olford was that pastor. And Redpath said this, God has not promised to forgive one sin that you will not forsake. God has not promised to forgive one sin that you will not forsake. Here's what he means. We can confess sin, but if in our heart we fully intend to commit that sin again, it's a false confession. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Not perfection, not legalism, but the pursuit of a holy life. So let's judge ourselves. Now, how do we do that? Well, let's consider our works. Do we live to bless and serve? Is God's church a commitment you make every week to bless and serve Him and one another? Are you known as a person of integrity, a person who will do the right thing no matter what? Works will be judged. So will words. Is there a long-standing apology you need to make? Or a confession of sin? And by the way, sin should only be confessed to those who are affected. Twice in my life I've had people come to me and say, you know, I really didn't like you, but I've changed my mind and I really want to confess that. That didn't bless me. <laughs> Works, words, and also secrets. Every secret will be made known. God will bring to light what is unconfessed. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's judge ourselves before we get there. A time of separation, a time of devastation, it's also going to be a time of jubilation. At harvest time, the wheat is gathered into the barn, and verse 43 says, The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That might refer to your face reflecting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember this. Jesus is judge. He is also Lord. And he's also Savior. So all of that wrath and fire and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, he took it upon himself at the cross, and he'll take it away from you if you believe in him. Someone told me this week about the day they were saved. He said it was like a huge burden being lifted off his shoulders. That's because it was. Jesus was taking away the burden of sin. He sets us free from sin, both the power and the penalty of it. And friend, you can walk into eternity in great peace, knowing that your judgment will be a judgment of rewards. That judgment will not be something to dread. It'll be something to look forward to. Because if you're saved, the judge is your friend. But if you realize this morning that you're a tear, that you've never submitted your life to Jesus, you've never believed Him by faith, Repentance has never been involved and believe on him right now. You know, in this passage, one of the things Jesus was doing was speaking to Israel. 
They were sure they were part of God's kingdom. I mean, the Bible says they were God's chosen people. But Jesus was making it clear that some of the Jews were saved and others clearly were not. They thought the Messiah would come and destroy all those wicked and unrighteous people. They were too presumptuous to believe that included them. So this is God's word, and this is God's warning, but this is God's invitation to become a child of his. Now, maybe you say this morning, how do I do that? It's very simple, just believe on him. But if you have questions, that QR code in front of you, that'll give you a number of choices, and you can complete something to make a time to talk to myself or Nathan. We would consider it one of the highest privileges of our life to talk to you about that very subject. So, if you don't know, let's talk about that. Don't want anyone to ever leave this building without knowing they're a child of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.